The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Where Were You in 92 is a production of iHeartRadio. That was all Axel-driven. I mean, he was completely convinced that if he spent money on huge, big videos, that, you know, the fans would, you know, I know there's that cliche, but if you build it, they will come. You know what I'm saying? And they did, in millions. Welcome to Where Are You in 92, a podcast in which I, your host, Jason Lanfier, look back at the major hits, one-hit wonders, shocking news stories, and irresistible scandals that shaped what might be the wildest, most eclectic, most controversial 12 months of music ever. This week, Guns N' Roses' 1992 monster hit, November Rain, was more than just an epic nine-minute power ballad for the ages. It served as a swan song for the band and for all the hair bands who dominated MTV and rock radio. As Nirvana's grunge anthem, Smells Like Teen Spirit, burst onto the scene and birthed an icon, GNR, who'd been one of the most popular acts in the world, would begin to unravel and lose their grip on the spotlight. In the next two episodes, we'll chronicle the making of Guns N' Roses' sprawling dual albums, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, and their wildly expensive November Rain video, as well as the events that led to the group's demise from the drug abuse, to the lavish spending, to singer Axl Rose's theatrics on stage and off. We'll also explore the tension between Rose and Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain, whose infamous feud reached a fever pitch at the now legendary 1992 Video Music Awards. Plus, former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg joins us to share his side of the story. This is the extraordinary tale of heavy metal taking its last glorious gasp as grunge and alternative swept America, ushering in an era of flannel shirts, ear-piercing feedback, and enough apathy to fill a thousand high school gymnasiums. The year was 2020. I know, a rough place to start, but bear with me. Because a few good things came out of that dark, unprecedented time. Here's one of them. Tara Reeder and Robin Petering live in Los Angeles. Reader is a bartender. Petering is a former hip-hop DJ who now serves as the executive director of Lensco, 
a research and advocacy organization committed to ending homelessness in L.A. The friends met nearly two decades ago when they were living in Oregon in their late teens. In 2020, like most of us, they were stuck in lockdown with too much time on their hands, biting their nails over the impending presidential election and the fate of their divided, COVID-stricken nation. That year, former press house secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders released her memoir, Speaking for Myself. The women learned that in one passage, Sanders described how former President Donald Trump told her and communications director Hope Hicks in 2018 that he wanted Guns N' Roses' 1992 hit, November Rain, added to his rally playlist because it was, quote-unquote, the greatest music video of all time. To hammer his point home, he queued up the video in the Oval Office so the three of them could watch it. Says reader, He makes her sit down and watch it, even though she's, she doesn't disagree. She's kind of like baffled by the whole story. So she goes home from work that night after being forced to watch November Rain with Donald Trump. And she goes to watch the season premiere of The Bachelor. And then Donald Trump goes viral for an insane tweet about Kim Jong-un's nuclear weapons. So he went on like a nuclear war rant, like right after watching November Rain. In the tweet, Trump boasted in his typical cartoonishly macho fashion that his nuclear button was, quote unquote, much bigger and more powerful than Jong-un's and that, quote unquote, my button works. So when I saw that, I'm like, news, Trump, Guns and Roses. It's like the Holy Trinity immediately sent it to Robin. A light bulb went off, says Petering. We were like, maybe he's right. Like, it's, I think he might be right. And then yeah. it was, how do we, how do we know? How do you know? And so how do you answer that question? And I was like, let's just watch it over and over again and see if it's the greatest music video of all time. You know? Mm -hmm. The pair then took things a step farther, documenting their findings in Nothing Last Forever, the November Rain podcast, which they launched in December 2020. Two years later, they have hosted more than 80 episodes tumbling down numerous rabbit holes as they tackle not only the November Rain video, but the legacy of its controversial heavy metal creators, Guns N' Roses, from their love lives to their lawsuits to their general lunacy. As Reader likes to say, the NRU, that's the November Rain universe, is vast and infinite. There are people that don't know what November Rain is. There are adult human beings in America that just, like that whole thing totally missed them. However... Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, that thing that was happening at the exact same time mm -hmm. is, is a huge part of their, you know, culture still. You know, Guns N' Roses is really just kind of in this like umbrella of one of those old 80s hair bands. She's right. A certain segment of the American population is unacquainted with all the outrageous splendor that is the November Rain universe. And though when it came out, it was a hit. Many who do know it consider it a relic now. Most major moments in music history are about being in the right place at the right time with the right sound. But some of those major moments are about being in the wrong place at the wrong time with a sound that suddenly finds itself being taken out with the trash. In a sense, that's what happened with November Rain, a brilliant but sometimes misunderstood slice of pomp rock that marked the end of an era. Maybe a few eras, but more on that later. At nearly nine effusive minutes, it showed up at our door and came on strong, real strong. But the song and its absurdly expensive, opulent video also became something bigger than itself, an emblem of rock's unchecked excess and artifice. 
This at a time when a new sound, a grittier, lo-fi, and therefore seemingly more authentic sound was starting to take over the airwaves. If grunge killed heavy metal, then November Rain, the video for which featured an actual funeral, was heavy metal's requiem. But before we get into how it all ended, you gotta know how it all began. The year was 1991. Guns N' Roses were massive, one of the biggest acts in the world. They'd released their debut studio album, Appetite for Destruction, in the summer of 1987. But after a string of hit singles in 1988 and 1989, Sweet Child of Mine, Welcome to the Jungle, and Paradise City, their record went to number one on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart and became one of the best-selling albums of all time. It's still right up there. If you could ever imagine a time when heavy metal reigned supreme, the late 80s and early 90s were it. I'm talking Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Skid Row, Poison, Winger, Warrant, White Snake, and most of all, Guns N' Roses. Even if you didn't like heavy metal, chances are you liked at least one GNR song. I mean, how anyone in their right mind can pop on Sweet Child of Mine and not want to jump in their car, roll the top down, take their top off, speed to the nearest 7-Eleven, and just pump some goddamn gas is beyond me. And I don't even drive. Sizzling, sticky, dirty, and slutty. That song is summer in a bottle. After Appetite came 1988's GNR Lies, a sort of stopgap album consisting of four tracks from a previously released 1986 EP and four new acoustic cuts. The band's next proper albums arrived simultaneously. Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 dropped on September 17, 1991, offering the world 30 new tracks spanning over two and a half hours. As GNR lead guitarist Slash writes in his 2007 memoir, Slash, after assembling in his house, the group wrote early versions of more than half the LP songs in two nights. This was because a good number of them weren't totally new. They'd already existed in some form, including what would eventually become the record's ambitious video trilogy, Don't Cry, November Rain, and Estranged. November Rain is the centerpiece of Usual Illusion 1, and if you ask me, by far the best thing out of all 30 tracks. His bandmates have said Axl Rose began working on November Rain as early as 1983, and that he'd essentially completed the original version of it when it came time for GNR to release Appetite for Destruction. But because that record already contained that undeniable ballad, Sweet Child of Mine, a number one single that would become the group's calling card, they decided to shelve the other ballad and save it for a <clears throat> rainy day. Not to mention, the OG demo for November Rain was 18 minutes which would be demanding enough for a bunch of sober guys. And if you know anything about Guns N' Roses, it's that these guys were nowhere near sober. But Rose had a fondness for the track, which he plinked away at on the piano for years, so he was crushed to see it scrapped. Now it was back. It had been around forever, Slash writes in his memoir, and it was finally getting its due. Because they were piano-driven and contained multiple movements and were like 4,000 years long, November Rain and its sister song, Estranged, were a bitch to record. Though the group handled November Rain in a day, Slash recalls spending hours refining its intricate arrangements. He also claims his guitar solo in the track is the exact one he played when he first heard it in the 80s, and that it's mostly improvised. Rose, too, was crazy committed to making it perfect. So much so that he moved couches, a bed, and his exercise equipment into the record plant, their studio, 
which also became a party palace for the band and his entourage. Slash pinpoints a source of tension among the group while they were toiling away on User Illusion 1 and 2, Rose's addition of keyboards and synthesizers. Rose had snuck some into the appetite cut Paradise City, and Slash had made it clear he wasn't a fan. He felt they were superfluous and that they diluted the GNR brand. Meanwhile, drummer Matt Sorum wasn't digging Rose's hard on for softer sounds. As he recalled in Stephen Davis's 2008 biography, Watch You Bleed, the saga of Guns N' Roses, quote, I didn't really sign up for this, all these ballads. I was hoping to join a badass rock and roll band. I was like, what's with the piano? But Rose insisted on the ornamentation. Stoned and surrounded by keyboards, he'd tweak and tinker, adding his vocals and more and more synths to Slash's guitar parts. Those grand, weepy strings you hear on November Rain? That's not an orchestra. It's synthesizers. Go play it. It's insane that they are not real strings. Even Slash remains in awe of them. By Slash's account, friction in GNR ebbed and flowed, but Rose was firmly behind the steering wheel during much of the mixing of User Illusion 1 and 2. As he recalls in his memoir, Slash would wait in the studio while Rose hung out in his house and retooled mixes Slash had done. Slash called the process quote-unquote one-sided, adding quote, Subconsciously, I think I began to see the band as one guy sitting on a throne high above and completely apart from the crowd of people hustling around beneath him. The band's working arrangement essentially became a dictatorship, with Dictator Rose torturing himself in an attempt to be more like his hero, Elton John, whose work, in particular his own 1973 double album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, seems to have been a major influence for the Illusion Records. As Sorum told Rolling Stone in 2016, quote, We listened to Elton John for inspiration for the drum fills and overall tone. I vividly remember sitting with Axel listening to Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me and Axel pointing out the style of the tom-tom drum fills. Rose had long been frank about how precious November Rain was to him, telling Rolling Stone back in 1988 that if he didn't nail the song, he'd quote-unquote quit the business. His obsession was exhausting. November Rain had become Rose's white whale, and it was at least partly responsible for GNR's demise. Slash even went so far as to describe November Rain as quote-unquote the sound of a band breaking up. I know, harsh, but take that with a grain of salt, because... He writes in his memoir that Guns N' Roses' cover of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil, which they recorded for the 1994 soundtrack for Interview with a Vampire, was also the sound of the band breaking up. So yeah, you get it. As purdy as it wound up being, November Rain rained on the parade of everyone in the group who wasn't Axl Rose. And its impressive, some would say ridiculous, music video didn't help matters. Up next, after the break, the story behind the November Rain video, which involved multiple locations and a shit ton of extras. Two churches, a supermodel, a wedding, a funeral, a man randomly hurling himself at a cake, and of course, buckets and buckets of rain. It was a feat that some would deem a masterpiece and others a disaster piece. I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The year was 1992. Guns N' Roses' dual albums, User Illusion 1 and 2, had debuted at the number one and number two spots on the Billboard charts the previous fall. They would score their final top 10 hit with their epic ballad, November Rain, which peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. The song was bursting at the seams with melodrama, but at least part of its success must be credited to its equally melodramatic music video. If Axl Rose was crushing on Elton John at the time, he was also crushing on writer, artist, longtime GNR chum, and current GNR road manager Del James, specifically his short story Without You, which reportedly inspired the video for November Rain before it was published in James's 1995 horror stories collection, The Language of Fear. Without You centers on Maine Man, get it? A famous hard-partying rocker struggling after his band breaks up. He's subsisting off booze and pills to keep himself afloat in his ocean of existentialism. His lady catches Maine cheating on her and dumps him. To try to win her back, he writes her the song Without You, which becomes his biggest hit. She isn't having it, though. She won't accept royalties from the song or his attempts to reconcile with her. After going to her house one night, he finds her dead with Without You playing on repeat. She has shot herself in the head. He completely loses it, trashing his apartment, his car, and his guitar collection. The tale ends with him lighting his place on fire, sitting down on his piano, and playing without you one final time as he swallowed in flames. Rose felt like someone had held a mirror up to him. I basically was that person, he wrote in the introduction to James's The Language of Fear a few years later. Rose's tempestuous marriage to his ex-wife, Erin Everly, had ended in early 1991, so he was going through some of the same shit as Maine. The tragedy and histrionics of Without You spoke to him. 
When it came time to craft the video for November Rain, Rose wanted that vibe. Enlisting award-winning director Andy Morahan, he would pull out all the stops to execute his vision and release what at the time would become the most expensive music video ever made. By the time Rose recruited Morahan, he had already directed videos for the likes of Mariah Carey, Brian Adams, Pet Shop Boys, George Michael, and more. His video for Michael's father figure, which followed a cab driver's love affair with a model and won Best Direction at the 1988 MTV Video Music Awards, piqued Rose's interest. He wanted a short film trilogy depicting a tale loosely based on Without You. Morahan had the bona fides to do it. First came Morahan's video for 1991's Don't Cry, in which Axel and supermodel Stephanie Seymour, his real-life girlfriend at the time, seethe their way through a stormy relationship. In the beginning of it, he is seen trudging through a blizzard in a cape and period-piece soldier garb, a bottle in one hand and a pistol in the other. Cut to Axel and Stephanie fighting over a gun. Later, she bitch-slaps a woman dynasty-style in a bar after she catches her flirting with Axel. Throw in a helicopter, a raven, Axel's very tiny jorts, Axel in regression therapy, and Slash driving himself and some poor chick off a cliff, only for him to rematerialize from the fiery wreckage unscathed and shirtless at the top of the cliff for a guitar solo, and you've got a lot going on. But this is nothing compared to the antics of part two of the trilogy. November Rain also stars Stephanie Seymour as Rose's main squeeze. No slapping her guns in sight here, though. In fact, the couple are totally smitten and tying the knot. We can't be entirely sure if that gun scuffle and Don't Cry came before or after their nuptials, but more on that later. Pour yourself some whiskey and buckle up, because we're about to get into this thing. All right, here goes. The November Rain video opens with Axel sitting on the edge of his bed in his gloomy room as he downs some pills. Behind him, the curtains blow, the wind whistles, the thunder rumbles. We hear the pitter-patter of rain. We're then transported to a packed theater where Axel tickles the ivories backed by the rest of GNR and a full orchestra. Flash to an empty church in the middle of a desert where he also sits at a piano. At around the minute and a half mark, here comes Stephanie strutting down the aisle of a different church, decked out in a white gown shaped like a mullet. It's been called the mullet dress. As we learned in episode three of this podcast, mullets were very trendy in 1992. But this thing takes mullet fashion to a whole new level. Its back is big, long, and flowy. But its front is dangerously short, shorter than a damn miniskirt, revealing the bride's garter. Folks, this may be the one and only mullet scenario where the party's in the front. Meanwhile, Axel looks like he's going to a Revolutionary War reenactment. Slash, his eternal cigarette dangling from his mouth, remembered to bust out his trademark top hat for the occasion. But he can't remember where the hell he put the wedding rings. Fuck. But have no fear. GNR bassist Duff McKagan has some spares safely placed on his leather-gloved pinky finger. Slash hands them to the minister. He thanks Duff for saving his ass, then heads down the aisle and exits the church. You think he might be taking a smoke break, but hasn't he already been puffing away during the whole ceremony? What's going on? Surprise! Slash emerges from that other church in a desert, minus top hat and tails, and instead wearing his classic look, leather jacket, no shirt. 
were then treated to not one, but two guitar solos, the camera zooming in and out and circling him like an eagle, leaving us, the viewers, soaring through an expansive, endless sky. This is what true love looks like. But wait, at around the five minute and 23 second mark, as Slash slides into that second guitar solo and the wedding guests douse Steffi and Axel with white petals, we see her in the back of a convertible outside the non-desert church with a hint of longing or unease crossing her face. Trouble in paradise. Cut to the reception. Stephanie has slipped into a sleeveless black velvet number. Axel is wearing a shiny electric blue blazer. They cut the cake. They toast. Guest of all ages dance. Fuck a DJ, there's a band, complete with an accordion and a mulleted saxophonist. Suddenly, the sky opens up and unleashes a torrential downpour. The invitees run for cover. Pandemonium ensues. People fall over tables, knocking over glasses and spilling bottles of wine. A handsome man with very long hair charges at the newlywed's tiered wedding cake, shoving miniature Axel and Stephanie off its summit and totally annihilating it. Cue a third, darker guitar solo. It's actually a dirge because now we're at a funeral. Stephanie lies in a casket in a church, half her face mysteriously hidden. Next, a cemetery where guests are drenched in more rain. Flash to Axel, tossing and turning in bed. Flash back to Stephanie, throwing her wedding bouquet. As it races through the air and through time, its white flowers turn blood red before it lands on the rain-soaked coffin, now lowered into the ground. The flowers bleed out onto the coffin, flickering as they fade back to white. It's night, and Axel is kneeling over it, sopping wet and alone. Whew. Yeah, I tried to keep that short, but I got carried away. Because when it comes to November rain, you can't not get carried away. Axel Rose got carried away, Andy Morahan got carried away, Tara Reader and Robin Petering have certainly gotten carried away. That's what this thing does. It sucks you in. Since it premiered on the MTV show Headbangers Ball in June 1992, November Rain has racked up 1.9 billion views on YouTube, the most views of any video from the 1980s or 90s. In 2018, it became the first video made before the invention of YouTube to exceed a billion views on YouTube. In a 1997 countdown of the top 500 videos of all time, MTV put it at number three. If by some strange chance you're not responsible for any of those 1.9 billion views and think the whole thing sounds decadent, you are very right. It was as costly as it looks, with a reported price tag of $1.5 million. And this was 30 years ago. I tracked down its director, Andy Morahan, to get some intel on what at the time was the most expensive video ever made. Why was it so lavish? You know, it was an expensive video. Don't get me wrong. At 950000 to start with, that's expensive. But it did grow exponentially. That was all axle-driven. I mean, he was completely convinced that if he spent money on huge, big videos... The, you know, the fans would, you know, I know there's that cliche, but if you build it, they will come. You know what I'm saying? And they did in millions. Billions even. Morahan attributes all those YouTube views to the video's epicness, but also to its ambiguity. You know, we've decided to make a virtue of the fact that the more seeds of nonlinear narrative that you kind of throw together, the more, you know, weirdly enough, the more intriguing things become. And 
And I think the test, you know, that the testament of that is it's still to this day people are trying to unravel what the whole thing means and did how did she, Stephanie die and why she got half her face missing and I, I speak to students sometimes who've done dissertations on November and they start telling me what some of the symbolism is and what it means. Fans have indeed tried to put the pieces together over the years. If Axl Rose is inspired by Del James's short story Without You, in which a rocker's ex shoots herself in the head after he breaks her heart, then maybe Stephanie Seymour's November Rain character did the same. After all, we do see her and Rose's character fighting over a gun in the video for GNR's Don't Cry, the predecessor to November Rain, and the first of Theron Morahan's Use Your Illusion video trilogy. Was this foreshadowing? Don't expect answers from Morahan. I don't have to explain everything. And I think, again, I think that's why I'm quite protective of the ambu- ambiguity of it, because I think it's open to interpretation. And I think that's why it has longevity. Morahan had his own inspirations for the video, including the 1973 thriller Don't Look Now, about a husband and wife mourning the loss of their young daughter, who then go to Italy to restore a church. Things get weird when the husband starts seeing his dead kid running through the streets of Venice. But some of what we see in November Rain is a result of happy accidents. Turns out, when Slash steps out for that killer guitar solo in the desert, dude was going for a smoke, at least in real life. The video's wedding scene was filmed at St. Brendan Church on Van Ness Avenue in Los Angeles. And after the cameras captured him heading down the aisle and through its doors, Morahan got the idea to segue to what would become one of the most iconic moments in November Rain. Morahan hunted for a week before finding the perfect spot for it. Sierra Polone Ranch in New Mexico, which has served as the location for a slew of movies, including Silverado, Cowboys and Aliens, Wild Wild West, and Thor. There was a white clapboard church in, but in the set, but it was on a pallet. So we basically, talking to the people who owned the thing, they said, oh, yeah, if you want to drag it out into the middle of the desert, put your own little fence around it and do what you like. To get that part of the video down was the biggest pain, really, I think. There were no drones then. So to shoot it, Morahan's team used a crane, a steadicam, and a helicopter. All for a scene that makes up less than 30 seconds of the video. Fun fact? Designer Tom Ford eventually bought that ranch, though it's now been sold to somebody else, church included. Also a fluke, that famous cake dive. It wasn't planned. It was like we'd done all the rain and the cake was there. And we thought, ah, fuck it, let's trash it. Let's do it in one take. And this kid offered himself up and did it. My cameraman, uh, Daniel Pearl, he still to this day cannot stand that shot and all the fact it was in the video. They found it so silly that Morahan left the shot on the cutting room floor. And it was Axel himself who went, man, where's that shot of the guy going through the cake? And I go, yeah, it was all right. I mean, it was nothing much to write home about. It was the last shot of the day, and Axel wanted it back in. And his instinct must be right, because people have not stopped talking about it for years and years and years. The big question that has haunted GNR disciples for years, who was the great cake destroyer? The theory among many was that it was Ricky Rackman, Rose's pal and the former host of Headbangers Ball, who does show up in the reception scene. Wrong. With intense prodding from Tara Reader and Robin Petering, the host of the Nothing Last Forever podcast, Morahan got to the bottom of the mystery. When we spoke, he was initially a bit coy, but then after some prodding from me, he pulled up an email from a guy named Chris St. Croix, who claims he and the Cake Destroyer worked as extras in the video. He said, yeah, of course I know who jumped through the cake. He was one of the gang 
He and I were buddies at Central Casting on call, being long-haired rockers in the 90s, so we did tons of videos. But we were just standing around, and the AD was desperate to find someone, and he was the man for the job. We busted his balls beforehand, as it was clear there was only one cake, telling him he, he was going to miss it, and he kind of did. <laughs> his name is Steve Catrell, C-A-T-R-E-L-L. Reader and Petering have tried to track Steve Cottrell down, but to no avail. Morahan doesn't have a call sheet. Vaguely remembers the guy. Steve, if you're out there and listening, please contact me. That's Lanfier, L-A-M-P-H-I-E-R. And also contact Tara and Robin. We're looking for you. We love you. That poor demolished cake is now a frosted artifact in music history. But shooting the November Rain video, much like doing anything with Guns N' Roses, was hardly a cake walk. The band may have been one of the most famous in the world in 1991 and 92, but they were also one of the most unhinged and reliably unreliable. On drugs, on the rocks, and never on time. Axl Rose was the chief reason for the notorious tardiness. But all of them were a no-show for one November Rain video setup, where they were supposed to play live with an orchestra for more than a thousand extras wrangled into the Orpheum Theater in L.A. A cinematographer who worked on that shoot told the Los Angeles Times in 2022 that he, a crew with eight cameras, and all those extras waited for the group in the theater until three in the morning, only for the whole operation to be shut down and filmed a few days later at a new location. And because the early sun is poison to party monsters, Morhan came up with a workaround for that too. You learn pretty quickly that if you're going to get daylight shots, you need to kind of do it on the end of a night shift. We, we basically had to keep them up all night to shoot them first thing in the morning. Slash wasn't always feeling the concepts. He has since knocked the November rain in estranged videos for being so over the top, telling Q Magazine in 2004, quote, We got into doing these huge production videos, and by November rain, it was just too much, just too involved. At the end of the day, it was a great video, but that's when I started realizing that it was getting out of hand. Was I ever worried about looking a bit silly? Well, yeah. Wait, though, has Slash ever looked anything other than cool? Still, Morahan maintains that Slash and the rest of GNR showed up and did their jobs without much complaining. He could detect issues between Rose and his then-girlfriend, Seymour, but friction in the band didn't cast a pall over production. I didn't feel there was a powerful tension, internal band uh, tension, but there was tension in the experience, you know, in the process, um, which was kind of inevitable, I think, from, you know, you go from being the biggest band, you know, you're the biggest band in the world, but it's starting to fall apart at the seams. There's bound to be some kind of tension, yeah. Tensions were there due to heavy drug use, the strain of a non-stop two-year tour, the making of those wildly ambitious Illusion albums, and Rose's swelling egomania. Up next, after the break, we explore Guns N' Roses' off-camera drama in the early 90s, including a concert fire, two riots, a fan suicide, and an overdose that nearly killed one of them. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, Time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The year was 1992. That summer... Guns N' Roses embarked on a co-headlining stadium tour with Metallica. As Slash recalls in his 2007 memoir, Slash, GNR's chemistry on stage was quote-unquote beautiful, but their dysfunction as a unit offstage was at an all-time high. He and bassist Duff McKagan would down vodka backstage to cope. Meanwhile, during a show at Giant Stadium in New Jersey, frontman Axl Rose could barely get through the set because of intense pain in his throat. He was diagnosed soon after with severe vocal cord damage, and the band had to cancel three shows. Shortly after that, in August 1992, when Metallica was in the middle of a set in Montreal, some pyrotechnics malfunctioned on stage, seriously burning James Hetfield's arms and shoulders and forcing the band to cut their performance short. GNR filled in, but Rose claimed his throat still hurt, and they too had to end their set prematurely. Pissed off fans took to the streets of Montreal and rioted, overturning cars, looting businesses, and setting fires. It wasn't the first time an abridged GNR performance ended in a riot. A little more than a year before, in July 1991, at a concert in Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, Missouri, near St. Louis, an angry Rose jumped into the crowd and took a video camera from an audience member who'd been recording the show. Furious with what he considered a lack of concern from the venue's security, he then grabbed his mic, shouted something to the effect of, because of bullshit security, we're going home, and left the stage. The concert goers went ballistic. Dozens were injured, and the cost of damage amounted to more than $200,000. GNR were banned from playing St. Louis. They didn't return for a show there until 2017. Rose was arrested a year later, when the band returned from touring in Europe, but a judge dismissed the charges, ruling that he had not directly incited the riot. The group was so resentful of the debacle that when User Illusion 1 and 2 came out, 
they included a special message among the thank yous in the album's inserts. It read, Fuck you, St. Louis. As Slash recalls in his memoir, Rose was consistently late to concerts and prone to walking off stage. One report says he once even puked on stage. All this left his bandmates and audiences fuming. Once seen as a scrappy symbol of the working class, Rose became infamous for his diva-like behavior. As one Boston journalist wrote, quote, If the stars are in the proper alignment, and if Axl Rose's psychic, herbalist, masseuse, vocal coach, and chiropodist all give him the thumbs up, Guns N' Roses will perform tomorrow at Foxborough Stadium. Guns N' Roses' reputation had long been questionable, but it was sullied even further after a grim event in Argentina that the London Times reported on. Watching the news, a man named Nestor Tellerito looked on in disgust as Rose and Slash peed from the eighth-floor balcony of their five-star hotel into a crowd of fans. Suddenly, he spotted his 16-year-old daughter, Cynthia, among those adoring fans. When she got home, Tellerito slapped her and forbade her from attending her idol's concert that weekend. In response, she shot herself in the head with her father's revolver. When he found her, he shot and killed himself. The band was also accused of burning the Argentinian flag. They held a press conference to deny the claims, but critics still protested their presence in the country. President Carlos Menem called them criminals and threatened to cancel their performances. Before any of the chaos and tragedy in 1992, the group had undergone some staffing changes. Matt Sorum had replaced drummer Steven Adler, who was fired from the group because of his heroin addiction in 1990. GNR had also replaced their manager, Alan Niven, with a new manager, Doug Goldstein, in May 1991. Slash has described him as a self-motivated climber who really only cared about making a buck and claimed that around the time of the release of the Illusion Records, Guns N' Roses had become a, quote, whirling dervish of miscommunication that spent money like it was water. Furthermore, Rose's bandmates felt very uncomfortable with his continued insistence that they work ownership of the band's name into their contracts. They didn't like the idea of their quote-unquote identity becoming a quote-unquote commodity. Slash writes in his memoir of this tension mounting after he offended Rose with a Rolling Stone interview he gave. Rose apparently reacted by ignoring Slash while they were prepping the stage for a show during the Illusion Tour and then leaving a straitjacket Slash had presented him as a birthday gift on Slash's amp before he left. But petty manager and bandmate drama was the least of Slash's problems. In September of 1992, before a show in Oakland Stadium, he got into a big fight with his then-fiancé model actress Renee Saran over their prenup agreement. As he recalls in his memoir, I went to the gig so angry that I was determined to do what I do when I want to act out. Get some smack. After bumping into an old porn star friend at the show, he gave her $700 to get him some heroin. She rocked up at the room of his San Francisco hotel at 5 the following morning with her boyfriend and the goods. Slash had already been drinking, but they proceed to consume copious amounts of crack and smack. Later that morning, his bandmate, drummer Matt Sorum, called and invited him to his room to do some blow. Slash got up and opened the door to head to Sorum's room. He didn't make it far, crumbling to the floor and blacking out. When he came to, he was told his heart had stopped for eight minutes. I woke up when the defibrillator sent an electric shock through my chest and stunned my heart into beating again, he writes in his memoir. Slash recalls wrapping GNR's year-long tour soon after his brush with death, only to discover that they had little money to show for it because of Rose's pricey backstage theme parties and the union fees they'd racked up for all those late performances. As Slash tells it, 
Goldstein informed Rose if he wanted to keep his mansion in Malibu, they'd have to continue touring. In October 1992, just weeks after Slash's overdose, before the band would embark on another year of tour dates that would take them to Europe, Japan, Australia, and that ill-fated stop in Argentina, Slash married Renee Saran at the Four Seasons at Marina del Rey. Duff McKagan was his best man. We can be pretty sure he had their rings on hand. When Slash describes his wedding in his memoir, he might as well be referring to the fictional one he attended in his massively famous band's November Rain video. Quote, We definitely didn't do it small. It was this really big production that I had very little to do with. Of course, there were other forces at play. Forces beyond the control of Slash and Axel and the gang. In 1991, while Guns N' Roses were hard at work finishing their dual-user illusion albums, the tides were turning. The coarser, less flamboyant, more lo-fi sounds of grunge were creeping in from the Pacific Northwest. Bands like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Nirvana were gaining momentum. Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit would completely change the game. Soon after its release in September that year, radio bigwigs would scramble to retool their programming to accommodate a shift in taste. The video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, which premiered on MTV's alternative rock show 120 minutes later that month, would become a staple on the network, changing MTV's own rotation strategy and letting loose a decade's worth of copycats. Remember that 1997 countdown of MTV's top 500 videos that placed November Rain at number three? Well, Smells Like Teen Spirit was number one. Guns N' Roses' stagey, grandiloquent video for November Rain stood in sharp contrast to Nirvana's simple five-minute video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, a murky, anarchist affair depicting a pep rally in a high school gymnasium that ends with its listless students coming to life and trashing the set in the band's gear. No opulent churches, fancy weddings, top hats, or period costumes. Frontman Kurt Cobain is seen hanging out with everyday kids in a pair of jeans and a sweater layered over a t-shirt, his hair tangled and greasy and mostly in his face, looking like he'd been stirred awake two minutes before shooting began. The vibe was visceral and raw, and it tapped into a new generation's disillusionment and apathy. It spoke to young MTV viewers because it felt fresh, relatable, sincere, real. To put it bluntly, more punk. By September of 1992, after Guns N' Roses had pissed away so much money and Slash had nearly died, Heavy Metal was already attending its own funeral. Robin Petering, co-host of the Nothing Lasts Forever podcast, points to the exact moment. At the 92 VMAs, when Nirvana played Lithium and broke their guitar, like, changed everything. And Guns N' Roses closed with the dueling piano with Elton John. People did not want that. You know, it was just, it was over, like, right then and there. Next week, we delve into the simmering tension between Axl Rose and Kurt Cobain that culminated with a nasty showdown at the 1992 Video Music Awards, a night that for many reasons has become legendary. We'll also examine how grunge exploded, leaving heavy metal for dead and changing the music landscape, and why Axl ditched women for dolphins. Plus, former Nirvana manager Danny Goldberg joins us to share his side of the story.
Where Were You in 92 was a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jason Lanfier, with editing and sound design by Michael Alder June. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.